Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Well, we're continuing our consideration of the Gospel of Matthew this morning, and we find ourselves in chapter 13. This is our second week in this passage, going from verse 24 to 43. So let's read this together. This is the Word of God. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At, that, at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Another parable he put forward to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Our God and Father, we pray now that by the Spirit you would open your word to us, that we could have ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to believe and understand hands and arms and legs to obey you, serve you, to be your faithful ones in this generation. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I said, it's our second week in this particular uh, passage, and it's important for us to remember that all of this goes together. One of the main ways the Hebrews communicated was through literary structure. We don't really do that so much in English today, so we tend to miss it. So they would often make their points and emphasize different things by structuring a passage in a certain way. 
And Matthew writes his entire gospel in a very Hebrew way. And so we don't want to overlook the structure of this passage. And you can see that Matthew brackets this whole section with the parable of the tares, as Jesus calls it. It opens with Jesus' giving of the parable of the tares in verses 24 to 30, and then it closes with his explanation of that parable in verses 36 to 43. And then in the middle, we have other material that would seem to be completely unrelated. We have the parable of the mustard seed and of the leaven in verses 31 through 33. And then we have the statement by Matthew that Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy uh, from the Old Testament where it says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. There in verses 34 and 35. Now, if you remember, this is the exact same structure that Matthew used for the first half of chapter 13. He opened and closed with the parable of the sower of the seed and then its explanation. And in between, he had uh, some Old Testament uh, quotes and how he was fulfilling these verses from the Old Testament. Jesus explained why he was teaching in parables. He said, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. And then he talked about how Isaiah chapter 6 was being fulfilled at that time. The heart of this people has become dull. Their eyes have become closed, lest they should understand and turn so that I would heal them and so forth. So we see that the interior material provided the reference points by which we could then triangulate and understand the parable of the sower of the seed. And we saw that while that parable has general application throughout the history of the church, it applied in the first interest, in the first instance to that particular generation to which Jesus was speaking. So the immediate application and fulfillment was not, as we often think today, to some futuristic generation 2,000 years and counting into the future, with residual echoes perhaps applying to the first century. Rather, it was completely the opposite. The immediate application and fulfillment was to that generation, with echoes then going forward into church history. And it's the same way with this particular section of Matthew 13. The interior material gives us the reference points by which we are to triangulate and understand this parable of the tares. Why, are, why is he saying this to the disciples and why are they asking him? And you notice what it's called. It's called the parable of the tares. Now, normally we would say it's the parable of the wheat and the tares, but that's not what it's called here. It's called the parable of the tares because it's the tares that are concerning the disciples. Because the kingdom of God, now here in Jesus, the king, the long-awaited Messiah, it doesn't look like what they were expecting. And the problem is not what they see when they look at Jesus. The problem is what they see when they look out at God's people. They look at Israel and they see people who don't care. They see people who don't get it. They see people who follow Jesus around because he feeds them with bread. They see most of the leadership is either nonchalant, they're either secularist, they're into Rome and staying in with Rome, or else they're actively opposing Jesus 
and they want to put him to death. That's what they look when they see out. And you can understand why they're asking him about the parable of the tares. It's the tares they want to know about. The wheat makes sense. The tares don't. It's not what they expected. Why aren't God's people galvanizing and rallying around the Messiah, the long-awaited king and the coming of the kingdom? Why does it look like this mess? Well, again, we have this material in the middle to give us our orientation points so that we can triangulate and understand what is going on here. Well, in the middle we have the parables of the mustard seed and of the leaven, which we looked at last week. And they give us the big picture history of the kingdom. In other words, it reduces it down to a snapshot. This is really wide angle. Wide angle. Jesus here is encouraging them. He's saying basically, I want you to know that the kingdom of God is not a failure. God doesn't try to save and fail. And the history of the world and of the salvation of Christ is not a stalemate between Christ and the devil. It is not a stalemate with Christ finally running out of patience and knocking the chessboard into the air and saying, we're going to start all over. Christ wins. And he doesn't just win in eternity. He doesn't just win in heaven. He wins here and he wins in history. It is a complete and utter victory. And that's what the parables of uh, the leaven and of the mustard seed show us. But it's not a victory. It doesn't land like the 82nd Airborne Division. It starts apparently weak, apparently insignificant, apparently not a threat. And it grows, it grows, it's gradual, it's over time that you see the victory of the kingdom of God. So he wants them to be encouraged. He encourages them. He says, look, I want you to know how this thing ends. I want you to know how this grows. I want you to know that this is glorious. Because I want this to sustain you and what you're going to face. And he told them just back in chapter 10 what they're going to face. He was preparing them to go out and preach to the different towns of Judea. And that turns out it's just going to be a training mission for what they're going to do after he's ascended to heaven. And the 40 years between 30 A.D. when he ascends and 70 A.D. when God brings his judgment on apostate Jerusalem, he, they're going to be out there preaching. And he says, I want you to understand what you're going to face. You're going to have family members betraying other family members. Wives, husbands, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, turning against one another. It's going to be horrible. You just imagine. You know how it is if we even have a friend, or maybe not even that close of a friend, that some kind of problem arises between us and them, or people we're connected to, how distressing that is. He's talking about families, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, turning against one another and delivering one another up to the authorities. He's talking about a horrible situation. He says, you're going to be scourged in the synagogues. You're going to be delivered up. You're going to be carried before kings and rulers. Now, that's not something that happened during the earthly ministry of Jesus when he sent him out to preach. That's something that happened after he ascended in the first century. But he tells them, he says, look, when you get one town won't listen to you, you move on. Move on to the next town. Shake off the dust off your feet. He says it'll be more tolerable for that town than for Sodom and Gomorrah 
in the judgment. Now, he's not talking about the last judgment here because he's talking about judgment on cities as cities. It will be more tolerable for that city. Judging cities as cities is not something that happens on the last day. That day, we're judged as individuals, individual by individual. He's talking about a judgment on cities as cities. He's talking about the Roman legions coming into Judea and laying it waste. That's what he's talking about in Matthew 10. And again, that's the context. He was just talking about that. This is part of this this cloudy picture that they're looking at. You know, it's a glorious picture when you look at the whole thing, But when you look at the battlefield that's right in front of them, it looks like war usually looks. It looks like hell. It looks like utter chaos. It looks like confusion. How can God do anything good out of this? And again, that's part of what Jesus is addressing with this parable of the tares. Now, Matthew says that Jesus is fulfilling a particular Old Testament prophecy. What What prophecy is he talking about? Well, he's quoting Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verse 2. Psalm 78 is a psalm of Asaph. Now, one of the little incidental nuggets I'll throw out there for you is that we know from this that Asaph is a prophet because that's what he's called, the prophet, what the prophet said. This is Psalm 78, plus uh, verse 2. Now, the next question we have in our mind after we've identified what Matthew says is being fulfilled is the question of what is going on in Psalm 78. Because as we've seen before, Matthew is not proof texting. He's evoking the whole psalm. Now, we might think today, well, why doesn't he just quote the whole psalm? Well, because he didn't have a computer and a word processor. That's why. I mean, (laughs) they're writing on papyrus you know, they don't have that ability. A lot of times they're dictating, somebody else has got to write it, then it's got to be copied and all this kind of stuff. And so, and they assume, they assume that we are really smart, diligent people of God and we know the Old Testament. That's what they assume. So he can quote one of the beginning verses and we go, got it. He's talking about Psalm 78. We know Psalm 78. Problem is we don't know Psalm 78. We don't even look up what he's quoting. So what is Psalm 78? Well, Psalm 78 is a recounting of the history of Israel, beginning with a recounting of the Exodus, of how God had mercy and delivered Israel from the tyranny and the oppression of Pharaoh, how he made her his own people, how he promised to to love them and he called them to love him. And then it goes on to recount how the Israelites again and again were unfaithful to God in the 40 years in the desert, turning to idols, constantly complaining about God, constantly accusing God really of unfaithfulness to them, either due to a lack of love or a lack of power or both. And yet how through all of that God continued to love her, be faithful to his people, to provide for his people. And that's most of the psalm, the exodus and then the 40 years in the wilderness there. Um, And then it talks, of course, that that period of, uh, of Israel ends with God raising up a faithful leader, Joshua, which is, by the way, Jesus's name. Jesus is the Greek. Joshua is the Hebrew, same name. 
It raises up Joshua who leads a newly constituted Israel into the land. All of the unfaithful generation who murmured, who built the golden calf, who worship idols throughout the 40 years of wilderness wandering. It wasn't just the golden calf because other uh, passages in the Old Testament tell us that they were worshiping idols during this 40 years. That generation is gone. There's a newly constituted Israel at this point, and Joshua, this faithful leader, leads them into the land of conquest. So we see that Exodus was about getting Israel out of Egypt, and the desert was about getting Egypt out of Israel. Okay, And those are two important things to remember. And then Psalm 78 goes on near the end of the psalm to recount how the attitude of Israel in the desert was an attitude that showed back up again and again throughout Israel's history. Um, And then it talks about God raising up a new king, a new faithful servant, David, the Lord's anointed, the shepherd who became a king who would, like Moses and Joshua, deliver Israel from her enemies. Okay? But of course, knowing Israel's history, we know that much of Israel would not turn out to follow David. Saul and the leadership opposed him, wanted to kill him. Most of the people did not follow him. David and his followers were persecuted. It basically ended up in a civil war. It was only... Through that persecution and cataclysm, that crisis, that David was eventually acknowledged as the king with a newly formed Israel around him. Again, we see the same pattern. Now, what does all of that have to do with wheat and tares and mustard seed and leaven? Well, it has everything to do with them. Now, you remember how Jesus began his ministry. He began it by being baptized by John out at the Jordan. Why was John out at the Jordan preaching in baptism? Preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because Israel was still in captivity. She had never really returned from exile. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and now Rome. And as time went on, it became increasingly clear to anyone with eyes to see that Israel's own unfaithfulness was the heart of the problem, and that the heart of her captivity was within her, and that she herself was the one blocking the fulfillment of God's promises to bless her, and by blessing her to bring His kingdom in through her and to bring His reign and blessings to the world. Now, God had long spoken of the coming of the kingdom The coming of the king, which is basically what Messiah or Christ means, the anointed one, it basically means king. And the new covenant, the coming of the new covenant, God has spoken of it again and again in the the Old Testament as a new exodus and a new entrance into the promised land. Okay, God again and again is trying to form our understanding of salvation as an exodus. We have all kinds of pictures of salvation today in the modern evangelical church. Exodus is not in the top ten. But it is the one that God took hundreds of years to create so that we would think of salvation and the coming of the Christ and the coming of the kingdom and the coming of the New Testament in that way. Now, 
Moses had told the people even before they entered the land that they were not going to be faithful to God over the long haul. And they were going to end up in captivity again. They were going to end up back in Egypt as it were. It wasn't going to be geographical Egypt. It was going to be a different Egypt. It's going to be called Babylon. But when you're under Egypt or Babylon or the Medes or the Greece or the Romes, you know, it doesn't matter. It's like we've said before, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot. What difference does it make? It's all the same. So they're going to end up back in captivity due to their unfaithfulness. But Moses also promised them that God was going to save them and bring them out in a new and greater exodus, this time circumcising their hearts, not just their flesh, but circumcising their hearts to love him with all of their hearts and all of their souls. And you'll find that in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now that's why John is out at the Jordan, because Israel needs to go back out into the wilderness because that's where she is spiritually. She needs to go back out into the wilderness and enter the land again through the waters of Jordan. And because the time of the new exodus is here, the time of heart circumcision is here, the time of the King of Heaven and of His kingdom at last has come in Jesus. And that is why John is out at the Jordan. But here's the thing. A new exodus means a new harvest. A new exodus means a new desert time of testing and crisis. A new exodus means a new harvest. Now, why should we care if it's a new harvest? Because that's what the wheat and the tares is all about. The whole description of separating wheat from tares, what is that? That's harvest. That's what that is. And so a new exodus means a new harvest. In Hosea chapter 6, the same passage where God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, which Jesus has already quoted twice in this gospel. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Same passage, Hosea 6. God says this, O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. When I bring about the new exodus through the Christ, when I bring the Messiah, when I bring the kingdom, when I bring the new covenant, this new exodus, there is a harvest that goes with it. There will be a crisis, in other words, which will come, in which I will distinguish between and sort out the tares from the wheat, before and as part of this new exodus. So in the Bible, exodus or deliverance always means crisis and harvest. And crisis means testing. Crisis is a word that we get from the Greek word krisis, which is the Greek word for judgment. So the basic meaning of the Greek word for judgment from which we get crisis means this separating one thing from another, distinguishing between this and that and separating them. That's what it means. It doesn't have anything to do directly with condemnation. It means distinguishing and separating. And that's why it came to be used of uh, like a, 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 a judicial tribunal because they distinguish between guilty and innocent and separate them, right? Right? 
And so that's what judgment means, and that's exactly what happens in a harvest. This gets separated from that. The wheat gets separated from the tares. And that's why harvest is one of the main Old Testament metaphors for judgment. So whenever God brings about a new exodus, he brings about a new harvest in which discernment and distinctions are made between the faithful and those who are not faithful and those who are not faithful are cut away from God's people. He accomplishes that through a historical uh, crisis, just like the 40 years in the wilderness. Think about it. 40 years of testing, 40 years of having to trust God. It was a very effective way of distinguishing between those who really believed God, who really wanted to serve God, who would walk with Him faithfully, and those who would not. You can see that even though it was a historical circumstance, it was not the last day, it very effectively, to a very high degree of accuracy, distinguished the wheat from the tares, didn't it? Okay, that is what a harvest is, that is what a crisis is, and how God uses it. Now, is God going to do that on the last day? Is He going to distinguish between wheat and tares? Is He going to distinguish? Of course. But it doesn't mean that that's the only time He does that. God has done that a number of times in history. He did it with Israel in the first exodus, and He's telling Israel, I'm going to do it again when I bring about the new and greater exodus through the Messiah. And so the 40 years in the desert we see replicated again in the 40 years between the ascension of Jesus and the destruction of apostate Jerusalem. Between 30 and 70 AD, it's a new time in the desert when God's people have to trust Him. Now you remember it started even before the exodus with the preaching of Moses. There were people who opposed Moses from the get-go. There were people who didn't believe Moses. But you know what? If you didn't believe Moses, if you opposed him, if you did not receive him as the Lord's anointed one, if you did not believe the gospel of the Exodus that he was preaching, if you had the heart of an Egyptian and you did not put the Passover blood on your doorpost, you were treated like an Egyptian. Those who had the hearts of Egyptians were treated like Egyptians. If you did not have the faith of Abraham in your heart, it did not matter if you had the blood of Abraham in your veins. It mattered nothing. On the other hand, Egyptians who had the faith of Abraham, Egyptians who were watching all this stuff go down and are saying, you know what? The God of Israel, the God of Moses, that's the true God. That's the real God. Those who believed that and followed Moses came out in the Exodus. They're referred to as the mixed multitude. And they end up becoming part of of God's people. So if you had the faith of Abraham, it didn't matter that you didn't have the blood of Abraham in your veins. And so we see that's the way it works. And we see the same thing going on with Jesus now, the new and greater Moses who is here preaching to the people. And of course, his disciples are going to preach to them later in the 40 years of the new 
wilderness when they are tested. And God is going to bring about another historical crisis, which is the Roman legions marching on Judea, laying it waste. You know, I mean, millions killed, in which to a very high degree of accuracy, the true followers of the one true God, the true people of the one true God, those who really believe, are going to be distinguished and separated between those who do not. Okay. So that is what we are dealing with here, and that is the context. So you have to keep in mind when you read something like in verse 40 where it says the end of this age. He says the harvest is the end of this age. There are different ages spoken of in the Bible. We hear that, we automatically think he means at the end of time on the last day, on the final judgment. But that's not the way that it is being used. Consider what Peter says on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, and the, the throngs hear these uneducated disciples speaking in all these different languages, uh, the praises and the words of God. Peter says, this is what was said by the prophet Joel. This is that. It shall come about, it shall come to pass, when? In the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. When did God pour out his spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters prophesy? At Pentecost 2,000 years ago. That is called the last days in Joel. He's not talking about the last days of time, the last days of the world, the last days before the last day. He's talking about the last days of the Old Testament age symbolized by the temple, the physical temple, and so forth. Uh, when that comes tumbling down, that, this is the last days of that age. Consider what John the Apostle says in 1 John chapter 2, 18. Now he's writing later on, he, was the, he was, lived longer than the other apostles. He, as far as we know, lived the longest uh, of, of all of them. But he's writing to the, uh, to the Christians, and he says this to them. It is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Now, oftentimes today, Christians think that the, the apostles were just mistaken. They believed the world was going to end then. They believed that the second advent of Christ was going to come then. The last day was going to come then. The final resurrection was going to come then. It was all going to end. And they were just wrong. We know more than they do. What conceit? Really? Honestly? Is that how we're going to interpret this stuff? I think the apostle John knew what he was talking about. He says, we know it is the last hour. He's talking about the very end of the Old Testament age. Okay. When we see something like verse 41, the Son of Man will send out His angels. Again, we automatically start thinking, okay, last day, final resurrection. But we have to remember that the word angel in Greek simply means messenger. It's a generic term. It's a common term. It just means messenger. Okay, in English we have two words, messenger and we have angel. Messenger means messenger. Angel means a spirit being, right? But in Greek there's just one term. It's just messenger. 
They call angels messengers because they carry out the bidding of God. They carry out uh, his bidding. They carry his word, his message. But pastors are also called angels in the New Testament. And others can be angels as well. In Isaiah chapter 13, God calls the army of the Medes my saints. Okay, he's talking about the armies of the Medo-Persian Empire that are going to come against Babylon and to destroy it. And he calls them my saints, my holy ones, my sanctified ones, my set-apart ones. That's what he calls them. Now, if you had asked one of the soldiers of the Medan army, are you Jehovah's saint? He would have said, who's Jehovah? The fact that they're unaware that they're doing the Lord's bidding doesn't matter. They are, in fact, doing the Lord's bidding. And so they're called God's saints, his set-apart ones. Okay. So he's talking there about a military conquest on Babylon. And God, using this kind of language, wants the world to know that this is not just another People being people, nations being nations, empires being empires, one more city being destroyed and overrun by one other army. It's not that. He wants the world to know that he is behind this, that he is orchestrating that. Okay, And that's what apocalyptic language means. When you hear apocalypse, what do you think? End of the world, right? Apocalypse has nothing to do with the end of the world. The Greek word means an unveiling, a revealing. Apocalypse means a revealing. It has nothing to do with the end of the world. And so apocalyptic language is God's way of saying, let me take you backstage here and show you what's really going on. Because I know you've been watching Fox News, and I know you've been watching these events, and I know you're seeing about the Median army coming and they're taking Babylon. I know you'd see all that. And you got, you got a big king over here puffing out his chest, and you got another over here puffing out his chest. I know you're watching all that, but I want you to understand what is really going on here and why? He says, so come backstage with me and let me tell you. And that's why God uses this kind of language. Now, I'm going to read you some of the passage where God talks about what's going to happen to Babylon because he's going to stir up the Medes against them and he's going to conquer them through the Medes. This is what he says. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have called my mighty ones for my anger those who rejoice in my exaltation, even though they've never heard of me and they don't know what they're doing. The kingdoms of the nations will gather together. The Lord of hosts musters his army for battle. They have come from a far country, from the end of heaven. Well, they're from Medo-Persia. They have come from the end of heaven, the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp, and every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid, and pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. And they will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. And they will be amazed at one another, and their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. And he will destroy its sinners from it. 
For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. And I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will shake the heavens and the earth will be moved out of her place in the day of the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. And then God explains in plain language what he's talking about. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans, pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Now that's apocalyptic language. We hear that, we just know he's talking about the end of the world. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a military conquest in the Old Testament. But it's God who's doing this. And he, in the, the apocalyptic language is his way of telling us what he is doing. And so it is the same thing here with this parable. Now I have to lay all of that background because... We don't know this stuff anymore. We don't know the Old Testament. There is not one person who heard Jesus talking about this harvest and angels coming about and the coming of the Son of Man and so forth. There was not one person in the first century who thought Jesus was talking about the end of the world. We all think he's talking about the end of the world. Nobody then did. What's the difference? They knew the Old Testament. They knew how God spoke. They recognized that language. God uses it a half a dozen times or more in the Old Testament, and it never once refers to the end of the world. It refers to historical judgments that the sovereign God brings about to accomplish His purposes. Now, is there going to be a last day? You bet. Is Jesus going to come back? You bet. But the Bible speaks very differently when it talks about that final coming of Christ and the final resurrection. It talks the way it, Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. It says that as man through man came death, so through man came the resurrection from the dead, but each in his own order. First Christ, the first fruits, and then all who belong to him at his coming. Then it says he will present the kingdom to the Father and abolish all rule and authority. That's not when he establishes the kingdom and sets up all rule and authority. That's when he presents a perfected kingdom and abolishes all rule and authority. And it explains that he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. His reign is before he comes, not after he comes. That's when he abolishes all rule and authority. He must reign till he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy is death. The last enemy, the, the one that he puts down in the final resurrection, is death, and that's the last enemy. Christ doesn't come and put down death and then start to reign and put down the rest of his enemies. That's backwards. He puts down all his enemies under his feet, and then he puts down the last enemy when he comes. And that's the final, that is the final resurrection when he delivers up a perfected kingdom to the Father. That's the way the Bible speaks when it's talking about the last day. It's not talking, it doesn't speak the way Jesus is in this parable. So, 
is this a fair picture, this harvest Jesus is talking about? Is it a fair, can you call it a picture of the last day? Sure. But we push it off all into the last day. And the fact of the matter is the immediate application and fulfillment of these verses was in the first century. That's why Jesus keeps telling them in this generation. What did he tell them in Matthew 10? You will not have gone through the cities of Israel before I come. That's not talking about the last day. That's talking about coming in judgment on apostate Jerusalem in the first century. Okay. So, looking then at Jesus' parable very quickly. Tears. Tares are what is known as the, the technical term or name for them is darnel, D-A-R-N-E-L. It's a plant. It's known as false wheat. It's also known as poison wheat because certain strains of it are poisonous. And here's the thing. It looks exactly like wheat until it produces the fruit, until it produces the, the ear is formed. Up to that point, it's almost impossible to tell the difference. And so, in fact, it was a crime under the Roman Empire to sow darnel or false wheat in somebody's field. It was a, it was a form of sabotage back then. Because you could destroy somebody's crop by sowing the false wheat in there. You have to get it out. A lot of it's poisonous. It's no good. And so you have to be able to separate it. You can't even tell the difference until they produce the ear, until the fruit is produced. And then the only thing you can do is try to pick through and separate. If you go through ahead of time and you start trying to pull it up, all the roots are intertwined with the wheat. You pull it up and you pull the wheat up. And so it was actually a crime in the Roman Empire. People did this when they really hated somebody. Okay. Now notice in this parable that the real battle is between Christ and the devil. We see that in verses 37, 38, 39. The son of man who sows the good seed, it is the devil, the evil one, who sows the bad seed. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The bad seeds are the sons of the evil one. Okay. Now, the difference between the two types of children is in the fruit they bear. You only know over the long haul. And oftentimes it takes a crisis like harvest to really show the difference. There are a lot of times in history where as it says in the Bible that people, some people's sins precede them. You, you, can look, you can see their sins. Other people's sins follow them. You don't know. There's a lot of times in history where you don't know. It's just all mixed together. You can't tell for sure. Now, Paul talks about that in his letters to Timothy. And he tells Timothy, Timothy, don't worry about it. He says, the foundation of God stands firm and it has this seal. Number one, the Lord knows those who are his. Number two, let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from evil. He says, don't worry about it. God can tell perfectly wheat from tares, even if you can't. And furthermore, do you claim to be a wheat? Then act like a wheat. Live like a wheat. Abstain from evil if you name the name 
of the Lord. Now the fruit that is produced goes back to what Jesus said in chapter 12, where he said that his new family, the family of God that he was reforming and forming up around him, the main characteristic, he says, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Those who do the will of the Father who is in heaven. And that's what it boils down to. That is the fruit that is produced by the wheat, the good seed, right? What is the fruit of the bad seed? Well, Jesus says in John chapter 8, speaking to the leaders who were seeking to kill them, him, he said to them, you are of your father, the devil, the same one who sows the bad seed here. You're of your father, the devil, and his works you want to do. What are the works of the devil? Lying, murdering, and enslaving. And he says, that's where you're headed, and that's what you're doing. So that's the main difference. Doing the will of the Father over the long haul, in, terms, in times of crisis, in times of testing and hardship, that is the fruit of the true wheat. There are pointed times in history where God brings about crisis, where he shows ahead of the last day who the true wheat are, and who the tares are. So notice that the real battle, though, is not between people. The ultimate battle is between Christ and the devil. And it's important to remember that. Because down here, when we look around, what do we see? We see wheat and tares, even if we can't tell the difference. That's what we see. We don't see Christ and the devil. But Jesus tells us, that that is who the real battle is between. Who is Lord? And he says the field is the world. Who is the Lord of this world? There's no question who is the Lord of heaven. Never has been. It was the earth. It was the world that the devil carved out for his kingdom by enslaving man and killing him, enslaving him to follow him. And so we have to remember whatever we're dealing with, whether we're dealing with individuals, whether we're witnessing, whether we're dealing with cultural matters, political matters, we have to remember who the ultimate enemy is. Paul tells Timothy, he says, look, I know it can be hard talking to people about Christ sometimes. Uh, and a lot of people get nasty and they, and they oppose and they, and they are uh, very hardened. He says, well, look, you have to be gentle and you have to be patient because you have to understand what's really going on here. He says, it's a matter of God granting them repentance so that they come to their senses and they, and they turn to the Lord. He says they've been held captive by the devil to do his will. It doesn't mean they don't have any will. It just means that sinners in their own self-will are extremely easy for the devil to manipulate, and he does so. Now notice that the, the battle is a battle for turf. He says the field is the world. The field is not heaven. The field is not the church only. The field is the world. And this is a battle for turf. Each kind of seed, the good and the bad, seeks to spread its roots and to bear its own fruit rendering the world either a wheat field 
or a tear field. Okay? And Christ and the devil are behind. Christ has sowed the good seed. Okay? What makes the good fruit? What makes us be good seed? When we receive the good seed. Remember the last parable, the parable of the sower? What's the good seed there? It's the word of the kingdom. It's the gospel of the kingdom. Us receiving the word of the kingdom, allowing it to take root in us and spread out side to side and fill us up is what makes us then good seed and enables us to spread our roots and to turn the world into a wheat field instead of a tear field. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit Heaven, the earth, the kingdom is God's will coming here. It's already being done in heaven. Okay. Notice also that it is the tares who are removed. Verse 41, Jesus says the Son of Man will remove out of his kingdom all who offend and practice lawlessness. Okay. In Peter... The apostle will tell them, he says, look, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. He's talking about the judgment in the first century. Okay, how was it in the days of Noah? Who left and who stayed? Were the righteous evacuated and the wicked left? Totally the opposite. It's the wicked who are carried away in judgment. It's the righteous who are left to inherit the earth. And so all that offend are taken out. Now it says that the wheat is taken into the barn, but the barn here is not heaven. That's what we assume. The barn is not heaven. The barn, notice, verse 43, is the kingdom of the Father, which is also identified earlier as the kingdom of the Son of Man. And where does the kingdom come? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it is not talking about going to heaven. The Jordan River does not stand for death. And the promised land does not stand for heaven. Since when does heaven need to be rid of Canaanites? The promised land is a land full of unbelievers. It's the world. It's not heaven. So these are the things that Jesus are saying. Now, this is important for us very important for us today because there are times in church history, I mean, the great exodus has already been accomplished by Jesus, will never be undone. That's never to be repeated. He dies once. He's raised once. You know, the leaven has come into the world. The mustard seed's been planted. It'll never be done again. But nevertheless, there are times when, in a sense, the church needs a new exodus. There are times when the church comes under captivity to different things. And the church desperately needs a new exodus today. A new exodus is a new work by God. It would be something like the Protestant Reformation, where there's a new work by God, a new work of power, a new work of, of, of making his church strong and vibrant and faithful and taking that out into the world and changing the world. We desperately need a new exodus today. And we are long overdue for a harvest. Because exodus always means 
harvest. It always has a crisis. We often think of the, the Reformation in very glorious and triumphalistic terms, but go back and read it. It was a time of crisis. There were a lot of bad things going on. Things looked bleak at that time. And it was chaotic. You have, just like in battle, you have people die from friendly fire. A good guy shoots another good guy by mistake. You think that doesn't happen in the church? Like all the time. All the time. Friendly fire. You find that in the Reformation. You, Luther's disagreeing with this guy and Zwingli and Calvin and whatever, you know, and, and you're going, this is all friendly fire. What's the matter with you guys? Well, you know, they're great, sin they're great saints and they're great, uh, great uh, people, but, you know, they're sinners. And there's a lot of friendly fire. But we need a new exodus today. What is the church captive to? Well, remember, all captivity begins within. And then it shows up with outside manifestations. Having an oppressive, tyrannical power is an outward, later outward manifestation of earlier uh, sin within God's people. Well, the biggest thing that we're in captivity to today, I would say, in the church is a kingdomless gospel. We preach a kingdomless gospel and have been for a couple hundred years. We believe that Christ asserts his ownership over this world in the future when he comes back. That's what the modern, our brothers and sisters believe in the modern evangelical church. But what was the gospel that Jesus preached? The gospel of the kingdom. It was not a gospel simply of forgiveness. It was not a gospel simply of a personal relationship with Jesus. It was the gospel of the kingdom. Did it involve forgiveness? Of course. Is forgiveness precious? Yes. Today and always, forgiveness is precious. But it's so much more than that. You can't have the gospel of the king without the gospel of the kingdom. The church is captive to a caged truth. Spiritual truth today is caged and put away in a certain segment of life. It doesn't apply to all of life. You know, when you look down through church history, you have different Christians at different times who had different ideas about chronologies of the end times and, 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 and what Christ came back. And different times people think, oh, he's, he's about to come back. Everything's getting bad. So-and-so is the Antichrist. You've you got all that kind of mess going on. But you know something? You never had in church history till contemporary times where Christians believed that Christ was Lord only over certain parts of life. They all knew that the king and everybody were answerable to Christ. Now, they would play games with that. They'd say, oh, divine right of king, so whatever the king says, Christ says. Yeah, that's a perversion, that's tyranny. Or they'd say, whatever the pope says, Christ says. Yeah, that's perversion, that's tyranny, sure. But nobody believed that Christ wasn't laying claim to everything. Nobody believed there was some segment of life that was outside of Christ's lordship. That is a modern heresy. And it is ours. And the church is captive to it today. The church here in America is captive to an Americanism. 
basically kind of an idealistic American nationalism. Just as many in Jesus' day were captive to an Israeli nationalism. That's how they wanted to see the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not talking about true love of country here. Because Americanism, this modern brand of Americanism that's promoted today, is actually extremely un-American. It has nothing to do with the founding of the country and what it meant at that time. We need to be patriots in the sense of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the most patriotic Israelite in his day, and he was regarded as a traitor to Israel because he spoke God's truth. He was for Israel being underneath Christ, not for Israel come what may. Israel under Christ, and that's what we should be for as well. The modern church is captive in captivity to conservatism, liberalism, and libertarianism. Because we believe that Christ is not laying claim to everything, there is no distinctive biblical position on things we line up simply with various political parties and we become wholly identified with them when it comes to cultural matters. This is not the way it should be. It's not that it's wrong to be involved in the political party and to be involved with politics. That's all good, but you've got to understand that the kingdom comes first and we need to start speaking with a very clear voice about where uh, Christ stands on things. We need to start, instead of saying that government controlling all economics and so forth and making people dependent on government and spending all kinds of money that doesn't have, we need to stop saying that that's bad economics. We need to stop saying that it's bad politics for the government to have that much control. We need to start saying that it is immoral it is wrong. It doesn't matter if it's good politics. It's wrong. It's immoral. Jesus taught us to pray to our Father, give us this day our daily bread, not to the government. And to make people dependent like that is the opposite of the story of God's salvation, which takes people from slavery to freedom. How many people are you setting free, O government? How many people are you making dependent? That's the essence of slavery. They're co-opting the field for the church and from a personal charity. The church has basically established love and charity in this world. It was the church who picked up babies who were abandoned to die. It was the church who started hospitals. It was the church who started universities and so forth. It's the church who's saying everybody needs to learn, know how to read so that they can read God's word. It's the church doing these things down through history. And now we have a government that's preempting all of those fields and making it more and more difficult. Now, this is God's judgment on us because we vacated the field without a shot being fired. We gave up the field. But it's very, very difficult now to reclaim the field. You take a church, an average church, let's say trying to reach out to people to take care of hardship or medical needs, 
And let's say you have a, just a couple of families with some really bad medical needs or, uh, and financial needs. Just one or two families like that would wipe out an average church financially because it costs so much now. Because they've printed so many dollars, they preempted the field, nobody can compete with the government. And so the church and Christian charity is squeezed out further and further. We should not, you know, we, we call ourselves conservatives. Conserving what? What are we conserving? 1950s? I don't think Jesus is interested. I don't think he cares if we could turn back the clock to the 1950s. And remember, that's what gave us the 60s and the 70s and everything else. That's not his goal. His goal is his kingdom, people believing him, being forgiven by him, worshiping him, living under his loving commands. That's his goal. That should be what we're seeking to conserve. You have liberalism. People who think that if they read in the Bible somewhere, oh, it's a good idea to help the poor. That means it's a good idea to help the poor by any means. That means it's a good idea for the government to take money and help. The problem with that is it ruins the humility and the charity that is involved when you actually have somebody, a face and a hand, giving help. To somebody else. It produces humility and thankfulness on both sides. None of that is produced when the government confiscates and then simply redistributes. So we're not free to just say any good idea is good for by any means necessary. And then libertarianism. This is becoming very popular in Christian circles now with Christians who are disenchanted with conservatism and liberalism. And I get that point. I get that part. But libertarianism that just basically, just, just as uh, the, the big status view that if we can just give the government control of everything, all our problems are going to go away. That denies the fall. That's utopianistic. There's a strain of libertarianism that says if we can just get the government out of everything, then it's going to be great. No more problems. What's your foreign policy? Don't need one. Just going to come home. We're going to be nice. We're going to leave everybody alone. They're going to leave us alone. There's a little thing in Genesis 3 called the fall. We should be captive to none of these political parties. We should be speaking the position that advances Christ's kingship and his kingdom. Like the apostles, we need to take the gospel of the kingdom to the church, to God's people today. Because we could be facing a time of harvest. We could be facing a time of crisis. I'm not saying it's going to be here this year or five. I don't know. God doesn't tell us that. But you can see things. You see more and more status power. You see more and more Christians associated with being kind of like domestic terrorists and so forth. You can see these things. I don't know what God's going to do. But it could come. And most of the church is not prepared for this because most of the church thinks they're going to be evacuated. Most of the church thinks they're not going to face a crisis. They're going to get whisked out. Disillusionment is is just ripe to happen. And we have to spread the gospel of the kingdom. But we have to be winsome and loving in the way that we do it. 
and just walking up to somebody and saying, there ain't going to be any rapture. In case of rapture, can I have your car? No, to, to most Christians, to deny the rapture is to deny the return of Christ. That's what I was taught as a new Christian. That's what they think. We need to help people get past the roadblocks. And I think one of the most effective ways is to point back to our Christian heritage in America because most Christians hold on to that. We need to point out that, you know, why were they so much more effective than we are? Why were they so much more powerful and blessed than we are with so many fewer? You know, they had a different view of Christ's lordship than we do. Don't talk about chronologies and stuff like that. It just gets people confused. Talk about the lordship of Christ. Do you know they had a different view of the lordship of Christ than we do today? You know, it makes me wonder. I wonder if they were right. Maybe we're mistaken. Maybe we need to look at this again humbly and consider maybe they were right because they believed Christ was Lord of all. I think that's a good place to start. So I commend all of these things to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.